Welcome to the Net and Sarah Show, where we aim to touch, move, and inspire you every single week. Really? We're really going to introduce our own show? Maybe we should leave it to the pro. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. One second, ladies. Here we go. Sarah Maxwell and Natalie Cook are experts in visualization and deliberate use of the law of attraction. As dynamic world athletes representing Canada and Australia in beach volleyball, they honed in on achievement at the highest level. With Natalie winning an Olympic gold medal on her home beach of Bondi is a pinnacle example. Their powerful techniques transmute the spiritual to the tangible, allowing thousands of their community members to bring their vision boards to life. Recently, they have returned from their full-time family adventure in Europe and are now grounding down in Australia where they are focused on all of you. How can your dream become reality this decade, perhaps even this year? Not only do Nat and Sarah bring us their three-step manifestation process complete with downloading worksheets, but also their realities of failed attempts and some of the frustrations that color their path. They believe that this life journey was never intended to be jolt-free, but rather a powerful trip down the raging rapids of life. Each week, the Nat and Sarah Show will navigate the epic lives of their mentors to uncover how they use their own manifestation process to produce dreams that are available to us all. Are you a member of the community? Go to bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah Show to download your three-step journal to follow along with each workshop-style teaching episode and get ready to take action on your inspirations. Today, we continue the conversation with a champion. Hitting her first squash ball at the age of two and a half, Liz Irving's destiny seemed assured with a squash world number two mother and a competitive playing father forming her DNA. But is it a genetic predisposition or is it more about the environment she was raised in? Rising to world number two herself and inducted into the Australian Hall of Fame, Sports Hall of Fame, in 2011, she also went on to coach Malaysian legend Nicole David from 2003 to the present, which has included nine years consecutive as world number one. This woman knows about champions. Currently residing in Amsterdam, where she runs her successful Liz Irving Elite Squash Academy, she has somehow found time to develop an innovative and comprehensive app called the Squash Lab. This woman has that Midas touch and somehow does it all with a humility and grace that allows her to continue creating new and expansive business ventures. So Liz, <laughs> super grateful that you're willing to speak to our community because I know there's a bit of jet lag going on and you know, you've just flown in from Amsterdam. So really appreciate you chatting to us today. Thanks, Sarah. I'm really happy to have a chat with you. I always love chatting with you. It's always very insightful. <laughs> uh, I've, I, I've loved you from the first day we sat down for coffee. I did. You, um, you really um, enthralled Nat as well. And she said, you've got to meet Liz. Um, yeah. I just imagine that, you know, this is what you do around the world. You sit on planes and people just get sort of wooed in yep. to the life of Liz. And I, I'm just, um, it's been so cool getting to know you a little bit better, doing a little research because if you could take us back to the early years and when I heard about you growing up on a squash court alongside your parents, I, I started to form this picture, but I want to be able to form that picture for others. So what did growing up in that environment bring to your career as an athlete? 
Well, I think um, in the early 60s, uh, my mum was uh, uh, world number two uh, to the great Heather Mackay. And if people don't know of Heather Mackay, just Google her and you'll <laughs> see what an amazing female athlete she was. Um, and um, I just really grew up around the squash centre. So, you know, I'd be the welcoming party at the front entrance when everyone would walk in uh, when I was in my cot. And then gradually going up to having a little squash racket put in my hand, um, probably because I had too much energy. Um, if they turned their back, I'd be running up the rafters and swinging from the rafters and nearly killing myself. So um, they literally put a squash racket in my hand and threw me on a court. And I just um, was obsessed with, you know, hitting a ball or chasing a ball or watching a ball move or... I just was completely obsessed with that from very, very early age. So racket sports, ball sports have been my forte anyway in life. Tennis, hockey, softball, badminton, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, but yeah, just watching people play. I always watched my mum play matches and training. And so, yeah, it's just sort of an intrinsic way of learning. And I think that that's, you know, you just grow up with it. It's just becomes part of your DNA I think. Sure. I, I just had this funny thought that that is the perfect child minding service is it a is. squash court. Yep shut the door and they can't oh. get out they can't get anywhere just throw a few balls on there oh. and a little squash racket and uh, let them go for it and that look that's how they start they start running around just sort of pushing the ball around on the floor and getting a feeling for this sort of three-dimensional aspect of um, a, a rebound uh, sport you know so using angles watching the ball work you know off front wall side wall or back wall side wall or which direction it goes and and that's really how you know kids learn and I think from two and a half or three they have the ability to to do that um oh, look my dad also had me hitting and I think in those days it was pretty advanced thinking we're talking you know over 50 just over 50 years ago um he used to have me hitting a balloon in the air like mm. you know hitting it like and that's basically like a forehand action uh yeah, wow. in, in 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 squash or tennis or whatever so and volley know, and volleyball just so you know because jordan does yeah, that she spikes the, the balloon it's actually yeah, amazing yeah. thing to do yeah. yeah yeah and i think my dad did that just automatically because he was always had a bit of an, a, co a coach element to him and um so yeah, there were there weren't all these programs in those days. It was really just trial and error and explore and try this and that. And he just literally got a balloon going. And I think I was about eighteen months old, and he had me swinging at that. So, so yeah. So um, you know, having both parents that were really heavily involved with sports activities, you know, you learn to have a sports mentality. I think. So imagine if, okay, so I get the environment, right? So you're around squash courts, you have a racket in your hand, you've got lots of energies. What do you think the impact was that, yes, you're in the environment, but then watching your mom and her game, do you think, you know, by osmosis, would it have yep. been the same if you just had two social playing parents? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky that I had, you know, someone like my mum as um, an example because she was a great player. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I was watching and being around someone that played the sport in a really high, uh, technically good level. And I think that, you know, one of the greatest um, um, compliments I had when I first started touring uh, when I was about 18 
people that knew my mum as a player said, oh, gee, you look like your mum on the court, mm. you know, the way you move. And, and I was just like, wow, that's cool, you know. So, yeah. And, and did she coach you per se or was it just watching her? It was more watching and she would get on and hit the ball around with me. She never really coached. She wasn't a coach. She didn't really enjoy that. I, my, <laughs> I love my mum to bits, but she doesn't really have a lot of patience. So I think to be... <laughs> <laughs> but to be a good to be a good coach, you really have to have a hell of a lot of patience because mm -hmm. what you could pick up or what you could do doesn't necessarily mean the person you're coaching can do it in the same time frame as you. So yeah. that's something that I learned in my coaching years as well, that mm -hmm. everyone has their own learning uh, pattern and time frame. Yeah. Listen, I live with someone like your mother who just thinks, <laughs> are you kidding me? Like... <laughs> Just do it. That's the, that would be the coaching mantra yeah. of Nat. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and, I, I, and we're going to get into that with you because this is something that I think is very beautiful about what you've done. Not only your own um, accomplishment, your own rise, but then the ability to transfer that information. So I think that's yeah. two, two different skill sets, like you're saying. Um, yeah. Now, I get that mom wasn't really coaching, was she coaching in a life way? What did, or maybe you were just watching. What was she mentoring to you around being a female professional athlete? Yeah, I think that's probably where my mum's greatest strength was as a coach mentality. Not so much being on the court and saying, hit the ball this way or, you know, tweak the grip there or, you know, get your, <laughs> lift your racket up a bit more. She wasn't like that. She would just you know, she would hit the ball around, play, and I would learn tactical play with her rather than technical stuff. Mm. But what she, the biggest thing from my mum was about having integrity mm. on and off the court. And that my mother is one of the most amazing women of integrity, honesty, fair play, respect. And these are the, these are the, the, the things that she taught me and you know I know that everywhere I went in the world and played I know people liked me and they appreciated me because I took all these values with me I wasn't this tough nut competitor that was going to win at all costs you know I, I did it in a way that was always respectful to my opponent and um, yeah just you know fair play don't take what's not yours you know if, if the ball bounces twice admit it don't right. you know Give, give the ball to your opponent, let them serve. You know, never take a ball that you haven't earned. Never cheat, never, you know. And I, these are the values my mum wow. taught me. And I'm very grateful for that. Okay, good. I want to I dive there for a sec. Um, I want to talk about that integrity, um, fair play, and still a desire to win. How do you, how do those all exist together? Because sometimes I feel that people and athletes live in the, if I want to win at all costs, I have to, um, you know, skate the edge, you know? And so I really believe that nobody sets out to cheat. Nobody actually says, Oh, you know, in my life, I want to be the bad guy, but it's one yep. little step off the path and another it. little step off the path. The next thing you know, you're like over in left field. So tell me about, yep. um, your desire to win and still have integrity. Well, I think that, you you know, when you're in competition, you, you've got to be careful not to make the competition about your opponent. I mean, I think, you know, once you get drawn into your opponent, um, 
And I say that, of course, we're there to beat them, but you can do that in a respectful way. You know, you, you, we're all there to do the same thing. It's, 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 you know, we're all there to try and win, but let's do it in an honest way. Let's not bring too much gamesmanship in, you know, like sledging and things like that on the court. That's not the way to play the sport. People do it, but, I mean, I don't believe you have to do that to win. But um, I think, yeah, just, just just having your own focus on what you're there to do, how you want to play the game, how you want to structure the rallies, you know, your plan, your game plan, mm. and all those things. The minute you start to focus on your opponent, you start to stray off your game plan. You start to focus on other things which are not are kind of irrelevant, you know. Mm. Um, so I think that's how I tried to approach my you know my play and it's ironic because you know coaching Nicole she has the most integrity of any player mm. in the history of the game that I've ever seen and wow. she chose me as a coach and I don't think it's a coincidence you know wow. yeah yeah isn't that beautiful because it's like you know knowing that she was you know, nine years consecutively world number one. I love that. And I love your, your history because it really shows people that you can be wildly successful with integrity. It's not like one needs to override another. Exactly. Yeah. Love that. So, okay. So this is fun. And sorry if those of you that are feeling we're getting way too sporty, just ride with <laughs> us for a sec because there are lessons for life here, people. I hope everyone's getting that because you know, in life, whether you're going for jobs, you know, if, if you start to, you know, even if you're in an interview and you're sitting out there, I heard this was a good one. Um, someone was interviewing for a TV spot and it was run over months, actually. It's, it's a long story. So it, it's basically this idea of showing up for these casting roles over and over again. And um, a lot of the people would like eye off everybody else in, in the, before they go in the room for their little part. And, um, you know, they wouldn't talk to anybody else. And there was this whole sort of gamesmanship going on yeah. against the others. In the end, they actually chose the five people for the role in how they acted outside of the room. Mm -hmm. And so it was not about what was going on in the cast inside. They wanted to see. So those five people that were chosen after months and months and months and thousands of people were the, the five guys that actually kind of grouped together and were supporting each other outside of the, the casting room. Yeah. And, you know, so that just to say that, hey, this is not just sport. This is in, in all areas, really. And so, okay, so here's what I want to know about, because this is coming up a lot in life um, lately in my world. So um, as you're rising up the ranks yourself, talk to me about expectation. And how you dealt with that. Maybe it's not even in your world, but you know, you have a world number two mom and they're telling you, Hey, you play like her. And did you ever deal with expectation? How'd you do that? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I, you see a lot of kids of uh, successful sporting parents um, suffer with a lot of that, um, you know, in their, their, you know, uh, professions. Um, I never really had that. Um, I had really amazing support from my mum and I, I was fairly, um, I don't know what you'd call it. I was just um, philosophical about it. At, at, an, at an age of 18, I was kind of philosophical about it. And I thought, you know what, the best thing I can do is just, you know, use this next three years as my university years in squash. This is my 
school of squash and I'm going to go out there on the big world stage for squash and if I do something great I'll stick with it everything's a bonus if I get a good win that's a bonus but I know I'm going to lose a lot and I've just got to learn from those losses and I've just got to keep using them and just keep growing and this is how I used to talk to myself and that's you know and then I thought if I don't do anything within three years then okay I've given it a go and I'll come back to Australia and I'll go to university and I'll you know do something in those days which was respectable um and uh but within three years I made it into the top five in the world and I never really looked back and I did I think it worked for me because I didn't put expectations on my results I just used everything as a learning curve and just everything's a bonus if I get a win it's a bonus you know and Liz was that true um by the way, that's great. That's the, that's a lesson in itself. I hope everybody hears that, you know, the way that you approached it, the way you understood that losing was going to be a big part of it. So important to lose. You do not learn unless you lose. You do not learn to say that went wrong in the match. If I'd only done that a bit better, I think I could have won that match. So right. I'm going to work on that area of my game to get that more solid next time and just keep, you know, tapping away at, you know, all the things like that. So, and so as you're building a career, let's say, um, do you remember what you like? Did you have a world ranking when you you set out? Do you remember what it no, was? No, I didn't. I didn't have a world ranking. I was Australia's number one junior, and um, but I had a dream. I had a vision and a goal. So I had dreams, and I had goals. I had dreams when I was <laughs> evidently when I was eight. I used to go to everyone and say, "My mummy's number two in the world, and I'm going to be number one." You know, so <laughs> <laughs> love so it. I don't know. If I really thought that, but I used to say it maybe, you know, because I was totally into it. And then when I was around 12 or 13, I started to, to have goals in my squash. Um, and definitely when I turned 18, I, I, I had goals that I wanted to achieve and I wanted to be a world champion. That, that became from the age of 17. I was clear that that was what I wanted to go for. How long it would take? No idea. Hmm. But I knew ultimately I wanted to be a world champion. That, and that was that. Yeah. This is interesting and maybe it's nothing, but I did notice that your mom was world number two mm-hmm. and that's your ranking when you transition to coaching. Do, what is, exactly. is there anything in that? Well, I think I have my own views on that, but um, my peers, my peers, the world number ones when I was world number two, let's say were pretty tough competitors, pretty tough people and um i just didn't see myself as that tough you know i was always kind of the nice guy um girl nice girl you know always interested in people cared about people cared about you know helping people and i just think that when push came to shove i just couldn't quite get over the finish line to get to world number one i just think i was probably too nice at times you know how did Um, how did nicole do it being a nice guy. Well, I, t- I, I tell you what, if she'd been my um, example, I think I would have believed that I could have been because I actually Got it. didn't think I was tough. I didn't think I was that person to be Got number it. one. I thought that's not who I, oh, that's not me. And we just had a history of world number ones being this type of toughness, you know. Um, but Nicole changed that completely. And I think that, yeah, I would have probably believed I could have done it more if I'd yeah maybe I think so yeah Yeah. thank you for that and maybe me and you are I'm just having an athlete moment with you but I get everything that you just 
delivered there because there's yeah. a sense sometimes of we kind of put all this story on what a world number one looks like, how they yeah. act. And we literally can push ourselves back from it going, yep. I, I don't want to be like that. I don't exactly. want to be that kind of person. This comes up a lot in sport. Yep. Yeah, I, so I think I definitely suffered with that. I suffered with that, you know, you know, I like to be the nice girl. I like to be helpful and kind to people and, and, and you know, um, and, uh, you know, the world number ones at the time were, were fairly aloof and, and not that interested in other people. And I thought, well, I'm not that type of person. You know, I'm really, I'm, I'm different to that. And maybe that's not for me, you know. Um, yeah. I love this because I, I, at the time when I was playing, the world number ones would push each other on the court. So our sport has two people, right? Yeah. And they would just like literally physically fight. And I remember oh God, I, I'd yeah. get so caught up in yeah. <laughs> that going, well, for me, I had all this angst, like, how can that be a number one? Like, how does that win? And I would just get so into this judgment loop around it. Yep. Um, and my coach used to say, um, he goes, winning is so not even on the, the bill right now. He's like, you yep. needed to look a certain way. And that's yeah. what you're really up against, you know? And, yep. and he was so right. I mean, this is, and this, by the way, is life stuff. Yep. Needing it to look a certain way. And, and, and so thank you for this. Cause I think it's really honest. And as a coach, I'm sure now there's a little bit of like patience that you get yep. to, you know, we get to reflect a little bit more, I think. Yep. In the coaching role. But how did you transition? Because I, I'm quite curious about that. So you were at the pinnacle of your game and why transition to coaching? Well, I never expected to coach, but I had an opportunity to go and coach in Amsterdam for a year and I'd had a bit of an injury and I, I just wasn't getting over it. And I thought, you know what, I'll just take a year off and um, take up this coaching job because I didn't have to train. It was the training. Every, every time I trained, my body just broke down. And I, if I didn't train, I'd be okay, you know. So I then thought, oh, well, maybe that, a year in Amsterdam would be fun. I always liked it. And I but I only ever went there in the winters for a week or two. And I thought, yeah, that'd be cool. I'll go there. Set myself up at a, at a fantastic club, probably one of the best in the world. It's called Squash City and it's in the centre of Amsterdam. And um, it's got 13 squash courts. It's just a beautiful club. And I started coaching there. And, um, you know, as time went on, I thought, you know what, I've just got so much to offer these, these girls that are trying to transition into becoming world-class players. I thought, well, I'll start. I started my academy and I had the Dutch number one Vanessa Atkinson uh, asked if I would coach her. She was sitting around 27 in the world and she was about 23 years of age at the time. And I'd played her a lot and I thought, God, I could really help this kid. You know, she's, she's a good player, but she's just lacking so many little areas. If she can fix that up, she could definitely be a top liner. Well, she went on to become world number one and um, wow. won the world championships. And at the time that she did that, I'd started working with Nicole as well. So, you know, I realised that I've, you know, I've got something that I can give to these girls. And I, it just, I then thought, right, I'm just going to focus on really, you know, giving back to the game and helping these, these young women that don't maybe have the resources that they need to make those next steps into world-class competition. So, what do you hence think, my academy I, started. Do you have a philosophy that you, um, maybe it was intuitive, that you intuitively brought to the table when that, you started coaching these women? Yeah, well, you know, understanding each of their personalities and being able to um, work with that. But one of the things that I've, I've always done, and I, I would suggest to any coach, always make the fundamentals strong. 
you know, and if you have the fundamentals strong, in, then you can start to mould and help, you know, with creative flair and, you know, other little subtle things and that work for their game. But not everyone is creative. You know, if you've got a creative play, like I was a creative player, so I would work with lots of angles and go for big shots and, you know, um, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, Nicole couldn't work like that. So I had to really work with Nicole as a very process-driven player. And I just worked with processes with her hmm. um, and just kept making her game as solid as possible with what she already had. And I think that's, for me, where I could do that well because I had a lot of influences in my squash as well. I had a lot of great coaches. I had coaches from you know, Egypt, Pakistan, Australia, UK, so, in, and those are really the four major squash countries and styles um, of play. So, I really understood and worked with all those different styles. So, I knew which players I could apply what to and, you know, all that sort of thing. So, really based on my experience and just a feeling for types, you know. Yeah. How do you get buy-in from athletes around fundamentals? Because sometimes, you know, um, especially younger, sometimes, and this is a business question as well, you know, yeah. and when it's like the basics, let's get the skills solid and everybody That's wants creative creativity and they want flair. How do you get the buy-in to stick with the basics until they're really solid? Well, I think, yeah, if, if someone, you never want to take out creative uh, flair from anyone, you know, and I've seen that happen way too often in squash coaching where that you've got this kid that's got, they're doing everything wrong, but they've got, <laughs> you know, they're not maybe winning matches, but they've got something, they've got creativity. They just don't know how to structure it and how to make that creativity shine in a winning situation. So that's when you need the fundamentals to be, you know, to set up the opportunity for the creativity. If you're trying to be creative when the opportunity is not there, well, then you're going to get, you know, eaten alive in, in, in the match, you know, because you're just handing the ball to your opponent too easily. So I think, yeah, that probably, you know, just sort of working that out and just seeing how to, um, you know, just work with, with steady steps, not bombard them, but just step by step. And, and but how, keep how do you explain that to them? Well, you always have a bit of a plan. And look, every player has a strength, you know, so you, 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 you want to keep those strengths really solid, even make them more solid. But then you have to bring in the smaller steps behind that. So if, say, you have, a, you know, say you've got a kid that, you know, can drive the ball really well with power down the wall, you know, and just, mm -hmm. but doesn't have much else from that you know so step one they've got a great drive okay right that's good let's work from that you know or you might have a kid that has an amazing drop shot but they've got a you know terrible drive they've got they don't volley they don't do all that so you go okay let's that drop shot's great how are we going to make you get this opportunity to work on your strength Mm. okay we're going to learn to make sure that that drive is solid they're digging that ball out you've got the opportunity for the drop shot which you can you know disguise hold do whatever you like be creative you've made that creativity happen by working with the fundamental and the basic so it's just really working first with what their strengths are and then how do we 
how do we bring around those basics in a nice steady step to make this game solid? Mm. Yeah. What I'm, what I'm hearing, what I love is this idea of really honing, going in on someone's strength and then having them understand how to set up their strength. That's it. actually, yep. score, you know, to, to okay. get, to get the, the point kind of thing. And, um, yeah, thank you for that. Cause I think that does translate. Cause I, what I'm doing as you're explaining that is I'm having a, an idea in my mind of someone that I work with who's really creative mm-hmm. and thinking, okay, so really hone in on the strength and really almost talk them up a little bit around it. Um, and then being like, okay, so how do we strategize and set it up for that strength to actually score you a point? Yeah, you know, because, business, yeah. yeah. You don't want to focus on the negatives. You know, that players and, and, and people in general are always very aware of their inadequacies. Mm-hmm. That's always. People are very easy and quick for negative self-talk and all that sort of stuff. So you, you've, you've almost got to, certainly with athletes, because athletes are quite insecure anyway, you know. They mm-hmm. need help. They want your help. They're very busy with what they can't do. And they forget what they can do. So I think a very important part of coaching is to be very, you know, um, aware of letting them know what they are good at. Mm. Because the the more you're confident and the more you feel good about that, you know, it's just going to run through. You know, it's just going to help you tremendously so Mm. I think you know there's enough negativity and that they know it and just you know constructive criticism you know you 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 know I would talk to my players after a match and say really I'd focus first on all the good things they did in that match if they lost I'd still focus on all the good things they did I'd let them know that that game was great you won that game because of this this and this okay and then I'd go through that and then we'd sort of if it wasn't that day another day I'd focus on what let them down in the match and not, I wouldn't say what let them down. It's negative, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We talk about, okay, this, this you need to work on in your game because if you can make this more solid next time, you'll win that match next time because you did all these things great, but it just wasn't consistent enough, you know? So that's how I approach my coaching. Very positive, but very constructive to see how to, you know, fix up areas that, um, you know, because I lost you the game, really. Um, uh, look, I'm really engaged in this conversation, so I feel like, oh, I'm, like, interrupting her because I just have so many things brewing because I love what you're, you're dishing out. Um, you mentioned athletes being insecure and this idea of very focused on what they can't do, and you kind of was perfect lead-in because I wanted to ask you about perfectionism in the athlete. Um, yeah. This is a world problem, not an ath- just an athlete problem, but... Um, yeah. A, a wonderful guy who we've had on the podcast before, Dr. Jeff Spencer, speaks about, you know, perfectionism is focusing on the 10% that you don't know or that you can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just really resonated with what you just said. And so tell me about that environment that many athletes bring in of wanting to be perfect. How do you deal with that? Yeah, well, you know, like realistically, there's no such thing as perfect, you know, and that's what I, I, I find it. It's, it's a bit like, say, you, you know, you go to the golf driving range with someone that hasn't picked up a club in their life <laughs> and they get, up, they get up on the on the tee and they expect to be able to hit this ball and then they get really annoyed with themselves 
that they can't hit the ball the way they want to hit it. And I think, well, what do you expect? You haven't practiced, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> Duh. And, yeah, exactly. And I, like, I find a lot of this, you know, perfection, perfectionism or whatever you call it, um, it's just unrealistic. So I, I've, I've worked with a lot of players that have this, dis- I've got, I think it's a disorder really. <laughs> but, I agree. But, um, uh, but um, you know, you just, I think you just try and turn, turn it around and let them be aware that it's, it's not the case. You know, there's no such thing. And they just, the, the, the harder they work and the more hours they put in and the more they practice, you know, correctly, correct practice. There's a lot of people that practice incorrectly. So, of course, they're, you know, practicing mistakes um i talk about you know that as technical mistakes or tactical mistakes so if you're going to do the same thing over and over again that's losing you the point well why are you why are you doing that you know you've got to break the habit of bad practice so Mm. um i think it just gets into if you just having good practice practicing the right things and and being consistent with it and then focusing on that rather than the result or what they expect should happen, you know? Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. So you notice all those words coming up from the word expect. Yep. So in line with this perfection disorder. Yep. So it, but, but the thing I want to say is like time has like zoomed here because I feel that, oh my gosh, I do. I, I have like so many more questions that I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I want to tease out here and, and talk about next time, if you're happy to come back is how, yep this idea of good practice. And in the squash environment, I want to um, throw out, I just want to make sure we throw this out, that the, the app that you created is yes. about good practice, isn't it? Yep. It's all about good practice. Yeah. Learning, learning the right basic techniques, you know, not, not, not weird and wonderful weird stuff, but just, you know, historic, the history of the game, basic good technical learning in squash for all levels. So it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. And I love that you've created it so that anywhere in the world, anyone can use it. And just even this idea that a, a dad and his son could yep. go out there and not just, just hit the ball. They could actually do what your dad did for you. Have some good practice, you know, have exactly like bringing all that stuff your parents gave you into an online environment, which is why it's so innovative and transformative. I love that it can enter anywhere. Um, And what a gift because you had a gift, you know, so many years ago of what, what town did you grow up in, in Australia? Uh, I grew up in um, Sydney uh, till I was around seven. seven You know, here you are in this, this town, I was going to say little town, but Sydney's not so little, (laughs) but here you are in this town growing up with, parents with a lifetime of experience and now I just picture someone in this is so random but it's Saudi Arabia <laughs> um, like being able to play well where's a country that's a bit more remote that that would get access and wouldn't normally oh look anywhere I could be Timbuktu I don't know it could be- <laughs> <laughs> we both can't think of one <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> perfect so Timbuktu, Timbuktu this app is for you it even rhymes um, <laughs> I love you you're so good um oh my god well I honestly want to thank you for um yeah just getting in here and, and really starting to shake it up a little you know I think the world is operating under expectation yep unrealistic 
the perfection disorder. Um, yep. Love that you called it that. And I think we've only just, you know, cracked the surface here. So I'd love for you to come back if you're up for it. Oh, I'll talk for hours on this stuff. Don't worry. <laughs> love you and your laugh and so okay well <laughs> to be continued yes for sure thank you so much for listening to the show don't forget to join the community at bit.ly slash the nat and sarah show to download your three-step journal and participate in weekly lives found only in our private group hold on hold on hold on You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.